0: still continuing our dive in the names of God. Um, we're, you know, we were going through the end of May. We're actually going to extend it two weeks. Um, I hope you don't mind. Uh, you're probably like, whoa. But each week's kind of a standalone, but I just hope you've been gaining a lot. You know, in Genesis 3-9, right after Adam and Eve sin, God showed up and asked a really significant question, and his question was this. Where are you, Adam and Eve? And since that time... All of humanity has been asking the question back to God, where are you, right, where are you, are you even there, I think it's a way of asking, do you care, do you hear, are you present with me, and I think this probably is a question that's asked globally, all over the world daily to God, maybe the most asked question is, are you there, you know, even David, who is a man after God's own heart, he asked he was not immune to this question. In Psalm 10, 1, he says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So if you've asked that question, I just want you to know that you're in good company. You know, God, are you there? And I want you to know God answers that uh, loudly and with a smile on his face with one of his names. It's found in the book of Ezekiel, the Old Testament book. And before I show you that name, I just want to say very briefly something about Ezekiel. He was one of the main prophets Um, who lived in Israel Um, we have a picture of him right there that's a nice photo I love that rugged that's how I imagine him Um, he most of his ministry was actually in Babylon after the exile in 586 when when the Babylonians took Israel out of the land and he wrote a lot about and God through him gave a lot of messages about the reason they were in exile because of their centuries of unfaithfulness to him and but also he wrote of God's promise that they would return to the land And like Isaiah, I love Isaiah, all those major prophets, but like Isaiah, Isaiah ends his book, the last two chapters, talking about new creation, the ultimate future. Ezekiel ends his book talking about new creation in the last six chapters, chapters 43 to 48. And Ezekiel, just like Isaiah, talks about that ultimate future, the new creation, the new heavens and earth, the city of God that's going to come, the new Jerusalem. And speaking of that new creation, the new Jerusalem, Ezekiel says this in the very last words of his book. I'm going to show it to you very last words of a book in Ezekiel 48, 35. And here's what he says. The name of the city, and he's speaking of that eternal city, the new creation. The name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is, would you say this with me? The Lord is there. And that's actually in Hebrew, that's a name of God. It is Yahweh Shama. Yahweh Shammah. I am there. Would you say that with me? Yahweh Shammah, and then I am I am there. You know, if you were to turn to the last book of the Bible to the revolution, revolution. <laughs> it is a revolution, actually. The book of Revelation, the last two chapters talk about new creation and says so many of the same things Ezekiel says at the end of his prophecy. It's really cool. Just let me point out a few. Like Ezekiel, he talks about the holy city of the new Jerusalem. And John says in Revelation 29, I saw the new Jerusalem coming from heaven down to earth. Um, he talks about the fact that in that Jew Jerusalem, there will be no temple in that city because he says the Father, the Lord, the Father and the Son, Jesus, are the temple. And that's so significant because in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God's like very intense, unfiltered, unmediated presence was, was that connector between heaven and earth in the Old Testament in the temple. And what it's saying is, is now that unfiltered, unmediated presence of God is now fully on earth as it was in the beginning in Genesis. It also says that the throne of God is in that new city and it's on earth and that's significant because when you think of the throne of God right now, the throne of God is where? It's in heaven, right? In the heavenly realm. But in new creation, the throne is going to come and be with us. And then John says really two significant things. In chapter 21, verse 3, he says this that echoes Ezekiel. He says, I heard a loud voice saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his God, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And that is a clear reference to Ezekiel 37, 27, where Ezekiel says, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then my favorite, Revelation 22, 4, um, which is here, says, they will see his face referring to Jesus. And his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, the totality of who he is like, we will be fully committed to him. He'll he'll be the thing at the center of our mind, the center of our lives. And so what I love is Revelation agrees with Ezekiel. That the hallmark of new creation, that the center of all of it is God's presence on earth, on that new creation. Specifically, Jesus being there, fully present, dwelling with us in in a physical, present way. And the ability to interact with him. He'll be there as Yahweh Shema, I am there. And I say, come Lord Jesus. Do you not say, come Lord Jesus? I can't wait for that day. So, but what's all that mean for us now? Does that mean God's not here now? Is that what Ezekiel's saying? And I'd say, not at all. The God does not change that in his names, in this name Yahweh Shema, I am there. The God in all of his names, it's the essence of his character. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So God is always there. It'll just be much more unfiltered and intense at that time. God's always been here. That's why David wrote in Psalm 139, 7 and 10, which um, Jen read, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are what? You are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. There's a big theological word for this. Um, We say of God that he's omnipresent, that he's all-powerful, that he's omniscient, that he's all-knowing, and that he is omnipresent, that he is all-present or he's present everywhere. That's what this is talking about. That's what Psalm 39 is saying. By the way, speaking of being all-present, as a grandfather, I'm starting to understand this attribute of God because as a grandfather, you get this attribute, actually. Um, Nellie sees me in every book. I dance with Laura Ingalls Wilder. Though I would say, that's Charlie Hoy, not me. Charlie will probably be in second service. Here I am listening to the teaching of Jesus. You know, hanging out with lions. I'm even in the Christmas story. Um, I'm in Madeline. I'm in Curious George. I won't tell you which character I am in Curious George. Okay, just kidding on that one. I mean, even my truck is omnipresent. This is really crazy. Um, most every book that has a blue pickup, there I am, right, with my pickup truck. That's the 60s version. Um, the newest book that I'm in, I hopefully I'm not the guy on top of the truck in her mind. And of course, Pat, Grandma gets in on the act too. Um, here we are after the flood, <laughs> at the birth of Isaac. We're at the Red Sea crossing. And here's what's amazing, ladies. We even made it into Pride and Prejudice. So, and I want you to know, even Lisa's taking on this omnipresence. Um, Nellie's, Nellie's noticing in her books. Only a few weeks ago, came up to her and saw Lisa in this book. I just want to know who that handsome man is. That's all I want to know, okay? All right. Back to God. Back to God. Um, not only has he always been there, but his, tent has, his intent is always to be with, to be with us. In Genesis 3.8, it says that he would come daily into the garden and he would walk with them. That would be the pre-incarnate Jesus, walking with Adam and Eve. Um, but because of the fall, here's why we don't see him as there as much as we will in new creation. Because of the fall, that man and woman's rejection of him, that, that them leaving and abandoning him and the brokenness of our creation, our perception of him has been greatly diluted. Okay? Our perception's been diluted. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.12, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then, speaking of Christ's return and new creation, then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. And it's not just that our sin has diluted our ability to perceive his presence, but Satan is actively at work to keep us from seeing his presence. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, That the God of this age, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. So there's a lot at work against us in perceiving his presence. But I want you to know that God is here. God is now. That's who he is. He is Yahweh Shema, the God who is there. It's just part of who he is. David, who had asked, Lord, where are you in Psalm 10, now says confidently in Psalm 75, 1, we praise you, God. We praise you, God. We praise you, for your name is near. I really love that verse. Remember, his name represents the essence of who he is. So what that's really saying is, is you are near. And I think the NLT captures it really well, the New Living Translation, when it says, we give thanks because you are near. Psalm 119, 151. We don't know who wrote that great psalm, but the author reiterates this by saying, you are near, Lord. And then in Psalm 34, 18, and I know that says 28, but it's 18. Um, I have to show you that though I'm omnipresent, I'm not perfect like God. So I have to put that in for you. So just kidding on that one. But in Psalm 34, 18, it says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. So if you're brokenhearted, I want you to know that he is near, especially near to you. Isaiah. Jen referenced Isaiah, I've got two scripture I love from there, Isaiah 41, 10, and 13. Do not fear, kind of like last week, Yahweh Shalom, don't fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. And two chapters later in Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. But now this is what the Lord says the one who created you do not fear for i have redeemed you i have summoned you by name you are mine when you pass through the waters i will be what with i will be with you and then when you pass through the rivers they will not sweep over you when you walk through the fire you will not be burned the flames will not set you ablaze because i am with you that we keep saying that i'm with you And those words, I am with you, are some of the most occurring, frequent occurring words in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. These are words he repeated to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua. We saw it last week with Gideon, where he said, I am with you, when the angel of the Lord shows up, to David, even Paul in the New Testament. At difficult times, usually, God shows up or God speaks, I am with you. I could mention many others. And I want you to know, he is with you. I just want to read Zephaniah 3.17 over you. If you don't mind, take this in to your soul, to your spirit. The Lord God is with you. He's with you. He's mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He quiets you with his love. He rejoices over you with singing. I love the song we sang. I don't remember which one, Jen, but that the calming of this knowing his, his with us, right? How Like you calm the waves, calm my soul. This, this thing here, he quiets you with his love. So I just want you to know, all of you, he is with you, that he is with you. And even Jesus himself, he used these words in Matthew 28, 20, where he says, I am with you to the end of the age. Don't you love how Jesus lives into all these names? Because he is Yahweh, he is the creator of God in human flesh. He is Yahweh Shema, the God who is there. And that's why in Matthew 1, 22 to 23, when Gabriel shows up to Joseph, in a dream to talk to him about why his fiance, the Virgin Mary, is pregnant. He quotes Isaiah 7.14. And he says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel. We just sang about that. Which means God, what? Say, would you say those three words? God with us. Thank the Lord that he sent his son. To be with us and to die for us. And as we've seen in some of these names, the Holy Spirit bears the same attributes as Father and Son. And so in John 14, 16 and 17, Jesus said this. I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter. To be what? To be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. He will live with you and he will be, would you say this with me? He will be in you. That the Spirit of God is, is living in me right now, that I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God's not only with us, but that He lives in us. I mean, wow, can you imagine that, the reality of that? Is that not a profound miracle, that He lives in us? So I want you to know, we love and serve the God who is there, and that means He cares. He knows that He is present, that He is with us, and that He's with you. And there isn't any better news than that. Right? We learn in the story of Hagar that he is El-Roi, the God who sees me. And he not only is the God who sees you, but he is Yahweh Shema. I am the God who is there. I'm with you. I'm with you. And that's why Jack and I, we did on the podcast, the angel of the Lord thing this week for people that like have questions about that. But As we were talking, that's what we love about these angel of the Lord stories, how many times he has appeared to people uh, this semester as we've looked, how he, that he, God so much wants to be with us, that he shows up personally and he is physically present to people in the Old Testament in time of great need. How the angel of the Lord, how Jesus pre-incarnate shows up personally to Hagar, to Jacob, to Moses, to Elijah, to Gideon. Next week, we're going to see he personally is going to show up to Abraham and reveal him to himself in a new name. Um, So I just, Scripture is full of this idea. And by the way, I chose this image of the footprints in the sand for a particular reason. Does anybody know why? Maybe you could guess. There's a really famous poem called Footprints, right? Um, Yeah, very famous. Carrie Hess and I talked about this several months ago, how important this is to her. I think she has this hanging on her wall, um, if I remember right. But in this poem, I'm not going to read it, but basically it says, God, I look back on my life, and I always saw two sets of footsteps, but I noticed that in the darkest times, there was only one set. Okay, she says it much more beautiful, and I think you all know this. They're like, where were you? Why did you abandon me in my time of greatest need? And he said, it isn't that I was gone, it's that in those moments I carried you. That's why there's one set of footsteps. So he is Yahweh Shema. Can we say amen to that reality? Amen, yeah. can we, like, it's okay, like, we can let God know, I love who you are, I love your character, it's revealed in your word. So this morning, I want to show you a story that illustrates this, and it's in Genesis 28, first book of the Bible. So flip over to Genesis 28. Um, We're going to be in verses 10 to 22. It's a story of Jacob. Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, the founding father of, of Israel, So Genesis 28, turn there with me. We're going to read in a minute. We encourage, encourage, we encountered Jacob back in March when we looked at the story of him wrestling with God. And if you remember, he was a conniving liar. He was a trickster. He was a schemer. He was a deceiver. That's who he was. He tricked his brother out of his birthright, his brother Esau. He tricked his father into giving him the blessing that his brother deserved, the, the blessing of the firstborn. And because of that, if you're in Genesis 28, if you'll look at Genesis 27, if you'll just go back at the end of that chapter, in verses 41 and 43, it says this, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. And here's a map of where they are. We're going to see in a minute these locations, but she's saying, flee to Haran where I'm from. Go to my brother because I don't want you to die. So we come to Genesis 28 verses 10 to 22. Would you stand? We're going to read out of the Word. Not together, I'm going to read, but if you would follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and he set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord... This is likely another appearance of the angel of the Lord, but stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you till I've done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar. He poured oil on top of it, and he called that place Bethel, which in Hebrew, by the way, means the house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And so this is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. There's so much I could do with this story but I really want to point out two key things. First, simply, let it be said that a very crucial time of his life, when his life's at risk, he's going to a place he doesn't know, probably a life at a time full of great fear and anxiety, that it was at that time that God shows up and reveals himself to Jacob to show him that he's with him. He shows him in a dream that he's with him, and that's in verses 12 to 14, and then in verse 15, he declares his presence. Again, if you don't mind saying, I am with you, will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you. And we know that Jacob heard it because he repeats it in verse 20, though he's still a conniving schemer because his answer is, just go back and look at it later. It's an if-then. If you'll blah, 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 well, then I will, you'll be my God. So he's still a conniving schemer. That's why most people think he does not really convert until chapter 32 when he wrestles with the angel of the Lord. But I just want you to see in this story that we see here words that we all need to hear. That in your most difficult trying times, God says, I am with you. I'm there. I'm Yahweh Shema. Here's the second thing I learned that I want to point out this morning in the story. And to me, this is really important. Look at verse 16. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. I was not aware of it. I was not aware of it. I want you to know the issue of God's presence, it's not really the issue from the perspective of the Bible. His presence, it goes without question. It goes without question. That's why Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, earth's crammed with heaven. Every common bush is a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes and the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. It's one of my favorite quotes. And you know, our problem is not the lack of the presence of God. Our problem is our lack of our perception of his presence. That's the problem, our perception. And I think, and a lack of trusting in his revelation that he, on, on this matter, that he is with me. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. To me, that's not only the saddest verse of the Bible, one of the saddest. It is the scariest verse of the Bible, and here's why. That the God who is fully present in my life, that there may be times he wants to show up in my life in a special way and speak to me in a special way and be very present, and he, he wants to encounter me and me to encounter him, and I might miss it. I might be totally unaware that he's trying to speak into my life. Would that not be the greatest tragedy of life, that God wants to meet you and speak to you and you miss it? That would be the greatest tragedy, I think, one of them. Not knowing him would be the greatest tragedy, but this as a follower is one of them. So I want to talk to a moment about something. Um, What Jacob had here in Genesis 28 is what's called a kairos moment or a God moment. Um, Back when I preached on stewardship and I talked about time, I said there's two Greek words for time. There's the Greek word chronos. We get our word chronology. That's clock time. That's watch time. That's hours, days, minutes, months. That's calendar time. Then there's the Greek word kairos, which means an opportune moment or an appointed time. It's a significant time. I want you to know God is always there. He's always present. But at key junctures in your life, he will want to have a kairos moment with you. He will want to give you an opportune moment where he wants to step into your life, just like he did Jacob at this time. And when he's doing that, he's trying to get your attention because he probably wants to reveal something of himself to you, help you to learn something new. He wants, it's an invitation to know him more intimately, and it's also an invitation to be changed by him. And I want, to, I want you to know, I feel this deeply, We need to recognize our Kairos moments. Do you not agree to that? That if God wants to meet me in a particular time and place, we need to recognize that. And so I'm going to give you a model to show you how to engage with God in those moments because the God who is there sometimes wants to meet you particularly. This this model originated with Mike Breen, but it was adapted by Sarah Cowan Johnson. I think what she did with it, I love what she did with it. She improved what he put. And then I sat down and further adapted it because that's just who I am to give it more clarity, and Lisa, thanks for helping me this morning, wordsmith, helping me wordsmith that this week, so here's the model, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but it's really significant, here it is, we're going through life as usual, and suddenly God interrupts our lives, he's trying to get our attention, sometimes it's dramatic, kind of like Jacob, but most of the time it's not, most of the time it's subtle, it's very unassuming, um, And here's what happens. When that happens, I can either miss it altogether. I was not aware that God was in this place in a special way. Not even recognize it. Or hopefully we can identify it and see it for what it is. And that's step one, is identifying that Kairos moment. And once I identify it, then I have a choice. I have a choice. I can either ignore it and simply remain on the path I'm already on, or I can step into it. Step into it and intentionally meet God to explore that Kairos moment. And hopefully we'll enter into it, and that's step two, is entering into that moment. We step into it wanting to meet him there, to encounter him in a special way, and to take hold of what God has for us. And this entering, it has three parts, three parts, three things we must do, all three, if we want to catch that Kairos moment, that God moment. And I want you to know all three are important because they engage us in the totality of who we are. Our head, our heart, and our hands. And here they are. It's encounter. We encounter him with our heart. It's orient. With my mind, my head, I reorient my thinking. That's almost always involved in a Kairos moment. And then third is we participate with my hands. We get involved. So first we encounter him. I turn my heart toward him in that moment. And I say to the Holy Spirit, I, want in, I really want to invite you into this. I want to learn what you have for me to learn. So I say, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. Would you please speak? And second, we orient or reorient our thinking based on what is needed. Because in Kairos moments, God is usually wanting to either teach us something new that we don't know, or he wants to correct false, incorrect beliefs or false narratives we have about him, the world, or ourselves. But either way, I'm needing to bring my mind into alignment with Him and with His truth. And Scripture is crucial here. Being in the Word is crucial. All the time, it's crucial. But in these moments especially. So I dig into the Word, and I seek counsel as needed. And finally, we choose to participate with God in the work that He's wanting to have in our lives. A decision is made to act in obedience to what He's teaching me. And I want you to know, I I adjust because I want to meet him in it. This third part is critical. Because without a needed change, the work God wants to have in your life will not happen without that needed change. Many people balk at this point and they bail because they realize that what God is asking of them is something they don't want. And if you bail on this, you just end up on the same path you were before, back in the same status quo, missing the thing that God wanted to teach you. But if you will fully, if we will fully step into it in obedience, if I put my hands to work, then God is able to send me on a new trajectory toward the growth and transformation that he desires in our lives. And that's what step three is. Pretty quick, I'm going to come back to this in about a month, on Father's Day actually, I want to, because this concept is so important, I'm going to take the life of Moses, the the beginning encounter he has, and I want to show you how this actually happens with Moses, and I want to walk step through step in the first few chapters of Moses' life and show you how this happens, and I want to explain it more fully. I've just given you a flyover, but this is so significant, and how cool of God, the God who is there, that in the week I'm going to do this, on Tuesday, the day that I spend most of my time digging in, that God gives me a Kairos moment at 1257. speak to a need in my life that I was praying about, and how he spoke two times saying the same thing from two different sources into that very issue. And I'm not going to give you the details, and you're like, oh, no, like, why did you do that? But I just want you to know, I think it's so cool that the God of Kairos moments gives me one in the week that I'm talking about it. So, brief overview. I am going to come back to it. Okay. Getting close to a wrap-up. About ready to land this. I want to step aside for a moment. I want to speak to the parents. It's Mother's Day, right? In this book, Sarah Cowan Johnson, it's a really good book. She said a lot of parents who are trying to disciple their children, wanting them to know Jesus. She said one of the mistakes they make is they spend their whole life as a parent mediating to their children their own relationship with God. And never teach their children on how to have their own relationship. It's a mediating thing. And she says you do some mediating, but the main thing parents need to do is we need to facilitate for our children to have their own relationship with God. Not see myself as a mediator, but as a facilitator. And she says this whole Kairos moment is huge. Helping our children learn from an early age. She even says she, with her son, she'll get, she gives a story of her son who was three to four. How she recognized a Kairos moment and even at that age started to like try to help her son live into this. Um, it's a lot harder at that age. But so that their children then can recognize their own kairos moments and live in them. Wouldn't that be significant to teach your children, not just to mediate your faith, but to felicitate, facilitate, felicitate, facilitate their own faith? So I want to challenge all the parents here, um, all of you. I don't care if you're a reader or not. This book is worth getting, and it's worth reading. It's worth getting, and it's worth reading. Buy it, read it. It's a great book. Besides, it's full of cold diagrams, a lot of them, right, which I need to make a book interesting for me. It was Christianity Today's book of the year last year. Um, I highly recommend it. You're like, I don't like to read. Disciplining your children is so important. We need to read, right? So I just encourage you to do this. Okay, so back to our name. Today's name is what? Yahweh Shema, the God who is there. Um, to help all of you remember that, we're going to send you out with a parting gift today. Uh, Lisa sent this a couple weeks ago. We, we just want you to be aware that Jesus is with you. So we're going to send all of you home with uh, a Jesus who is always present. And I want to tell you, what a great evangelism opportunity, guys especially. When you show up at work tomorrow and you're wearing this and people say, what in the world is wrong with you? That you can use this as an opportunity to share your faith. Um, just kidding, we're not really giving these to you. Lisa sent this out a couple weeks ago, a picture, and then Laura bought the staff one, so. Uh, but I don't think you'll ever see me in public with this. Oh, I know, so disappointing, huh? Um, I hope nobody got a picture of that. I hope that doesn't make, uh, but 12th, here's what I want to remind you, all jesting aside. God is with you. He is Yahweh Shalom. He is the God who is there. He's the God who is there. Let's live into that reality. Can we trust him with that reality and seek his calming peace in the times when we feel like he's not there, trusting his word that he is? And 12, let us look out for those kairos moments when the God who is there wants to step into my life in a very particular way to speak to me about a very particular thing he has for me. Let us really live with an attentiveness trying to be aware of that and when those moments come that we step into them and we enter into Him with Him so that we can be changed and transformed by Him. So, isn't that a great name? Yahweh Shema. I am there with you. Would you stand? I want to pray. Father, thank You for this name. Thank You for this reality that You are there. I don't always feel it. I don't see it all the time. There's times I wonder. But Lord, over the years of my life, as I've been in your word, even this semester, as I'm learning more and more about who you are in these names, thank you for the reality that you are the God who is there. May we worship you as the God who is there. May we seek you as the God who is there. Help us to live and a trust into that. And Lord, make us a people who are open to the work of your spirit in our lives and open to any time that you want to step into our life. And may we be people who enter into our Kairos moments as hard as they may be, not bail on them, not balk them. I pray we would not miss them, but we would enter into them and through that become more and more like you and more like your son, Jesus. And live more into the full life and true life you have for us. So we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, grab some pictures, mothers. God bless you. We celebrate you today. Have a great day.